0: This is Bloomberg Business Week, insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine, plus global business, finance and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. It's week 58 working from home still for many. We both were in the office this week. And I got to say, Tim, New York City, our home base, it felt
2: like it was opening up this week. It did. I think part of it has to do with just how many people are getting vaccinated. Yeah. And then also the weather. It does start to feel like spring, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Made a big, big difference.
2: And investors are increasingly focusing on an economic recovery while keeping a watchful eye on the COVID global case count. Also, Corporate earnings, we're in the midst of them.
1: Yep. And with that as our backdrop this week, we are going to hear from one CEO about the recent quarter and outlook, Chipotle CEO Brian Nickel, stopping by.
2: Plus the best electric vehicles of twenty twenty one. You're gonna be surprised about one car maker that didn't make the list. Hint, it's Tesla. <laughs> giving it away. <laughs> I know.
1: All right, we're also gonna take you inside the magazine. A look at the future of energy. Who has it right? The head of Exxon, or speaking of Tesla. Elon Musk all of that to come we begin though with this week's cover story President Biden Tim marking his 100th day in office this coming week
2: well the president taking office amid a health pandemic a sagging economy a reckoning with centuries of racial injustice and the existential threat of climate change he's made progress and taken action and yet still faces some tough roads ahead
1: for all the details we spoke with Bloomberg News White House reporter Nancy Cook I think most people would say that Biden has done
3: a pretty good job um You know, he has a majority of Americans support him in polling Uh, Democrats, even people who wish that Senator Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders had won the nomination. They're really happy with him. Um, And he's even polling well with Republicans who feel like, you know, he's done a pretty good job handling COVID. And so what he walked into chiefly were, uh, you know, a pandemic and uh, low vaccination rates and schools closed and the economy really in a slump. And the first 100 days has really been about trying to solve those two crises. And they've done a lot of that by ramping up the vaccine uh, distribution, by getting more people vaccinated, and then passing this sweeping $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, which gives money for things like testing and school reopening. And so, so much of the first 100 days have just been dealing with crisis, and now becomes the hard part (laughs) where he's really trying to do something
1: to cement his legacy. What is the playbook for the next 100 days? What does it need to be? What do people say it needs to be?
3: Well, I think the playbook that they're trying to do is now that they have I mean they still have to deal with the pandemic and there's still a lot of fallout from the economic downturn. So no one in the White House is discounting that. But what they're trying to do now is sort of reshape the economy and propose some big ideas that Democrats have long wanted to do. And so that includes everything from infrastructure to more money for childcare and elder care. And that's this sweeping set of packages President Biden's going to unveil this this third one that he's talking about. Um, on Wednesday. And and those those the most recent two packages, the infrastructure and this upcoming families one, you know, that's more than three trillion dollars in spending that they are proposing. They want to offset it with tax increases. But again, it's a huge amount of money and their goal is to really not just bring the economy back to where it was, but also sort of try to make some tweaks to it and reshape it.
2: So obviously, it's really ambitious. And the Biden administration and Democrats, well, the Biden administration, you know, is the Biden, Biden's president. Democrats control the House and Senate, but barely. Uh, and there are some modern de- moderate Democrats who don't support these plans as they are right now. How does Biden sell this? And, and, and to what extent does it involve selling the plan to the American people in a way that President Obama didn't do when it came to Obamacare?
4: that's
3: a great question so the way that they sold the covid ruby bill which is the way they're going to try to sell these two bills was really to try to build public support outside of washington so what they have tried to do is define unity or bipartisanship not really as democratic lawmakers and republican lawmakers on capitol hill agreeing but more to try to promote policies and and put forward ideas that appeal to the majority of americans and so with the infrastructure package for instance you know, 70 percent of Republican voters are in favor of rebuilding roads and bridges, more job training, increasing broadband access. And those are the things that the Biden White House is going to keep focusing on. These plans that appeal to Democratic and Republican voters, not necessarily just lawmakers on Capitol, Capitol Hill. That's really the political strategy. Is
1: it a smart strategy? Does it work? Will it work?
3: It works with the covid relief bill. It works very well. And, and I think that they feel like based on what they saw during the Obama administration and, and how much uh, Obama was tied up with trying to go with after Republicans and woo Republicans who didn't really want to work with him. I think that the Biden administration learned some lessons and felt like they had to go another way. And it was a gamble, but it worked for the COVID relief bill. And I think they're going to try the same thing with these next two packages.
2: So enter 2022. And that's when, you know, the midterms are. And I'm wondering how the ambitious goals that the Biden administration has right now have to get done before 2022 and how that can change the, the landscape in Washington.
3: Well, really, they they feel like they, you know, that midterm elections, the party in power typically loses. And so I think the White House is very focused on the midterms and they feel like, you know, they have a window of time to try to get these major things done and they're going to go for it. And I think so much of the argument heading into the midterms for the Biden administration is going to be an economic one. Are you better off financially than you were two years ago? You know, are you making more money? Um, is the stock market in a good place? Are the kids' schools reopening? Mm. Are there more people in the middle class? And so. It's really it's interesting because it's a uh, it's an area where Republicans have so dominated. Typically, Republican politicians get um, higher polling for their handling of the economy. But what we've seen in recent polling is Biden's getting very high marks for his handling of the economy. Mm. And so so much of that political argument in 2022 is going to be around that.
2: That was Bloomberg News White House correspondent Nancy Cook. First 100 down now. It's the next 100. <laughs> yeah, I can't tell if this if it felt like 100 days or if it went by really slowly or really fast. But time is just really weird right now, Carol, for so many people.
1: I totally agree. All right, coming up, how doctors are working on building public trust and acceptance of vaccines. This is really important. It
2: is, especially as we get to the second half of American adults getting the vaccine. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Earlier this week, President Biden had some good news regarding the pandemic. He announced that America reached his goal of 200 million shots on day 92 of his presidency, so ahead of schedule. I'm
5: proud of the American people, the volunteers who showed up to staff vaccination sites in their neighborhoods, drove senior citizens to get their shots. FEMA, the military, the National Guard, state and local health departments and <clears throat> providers running sites safely and efficiently.
2: Ahead of schedule, but Carol, now comes the hard part, that second half of Americans. More than 50% of the U.S. population has received at least one dose of the vaccine. And for more on the vaccine rollout in America, we turn to Dr. Chris Beirer, professor of public health and human rights at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. It is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. The
6: good news here really is that we have two uh, very safe and effective vaccines, the two messenger RNA vaccines, um, the Moderna and the Pfizer. Uh, those, of course, are both two-dose vaccines. They have not had some of the same problems that have emerged with the um, with the, Janssen, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine or the AstraZeneca vaccine. This is the, the challenge that has been uh, rare, uh, but nevertheless um, significant complication of blood clots. We don't see those with either the Pfizer or the Moderna So uh, our vaccine rollout is going uh, really very well. Um, We're over, you know, uh, now three million uh, adults being immunized every day Um, and we're expecting uh, emergency use authorization uh, for the Pfizer vaccine to go down to 12 to 17 year olds as well. That may happen fairly soon.
2: Can we get uh, out of the pandemic, though, if people under the age of 12 cannot be vaccinated?
6: Well. About 25% of the American population is children under age 18, Tim. So uh, it is very important that we learn as quickly as we can uh, if these vaccines are as safe and effective in children as they are in adults. Um, That process uh, is mostly being led right now by the companies themselves. Uh, The trials are underway. Um, We have the data, as I said, from the uh, 12- to 17-year-olds, uh, the um, we really need to accelerate the research effort for the 5- to 12-year-olds. And, of course, that's so important for them for, you know, getting back to seeing their friends and getting back to school and, and getting back to active life, which uh, we really need for our kids.
1: Right, getting back to, you know, a so-called normal life. The thing is, I mean, bottom line, vaccines are the way out of the pandemic. Done, right?
6: No question. No
1: question. So if we don't get to herd immunity, what does our world look like?
6: Well, right now, we we have a couple of very specific challenges. People have described this as a race between the vaccine rollout and the emergence of these new variants, the mutants that you were mentioning. And that really is a challenge. Uh, Some of these new variants uh, are more infectious than the viruses we first encountered um, some of them uh, have more resistance to the broadly neutralizing antibodies that we've been using. And at least one, for sure, the, the variant that was first identified in South Africa, uh, does appear to be a challenge for at least the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, the good news is that they both the uh, messenger RNA vaccines, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, uh, and as far as we can tell, the Johnson & Johnson vaccines, do appear to provide good, robust protection against the variants that are circulating now. Uh, But what we're learning with this virus is that mutations keep happening, uh, and we really have to get ahead of those mutations. The big challenge right now is that the vaccine rollout is stalled in much of the rest of the world. That's because the rest of the world doesn't have the same access to the messenger RNAs. They were relying on AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson. Uh, and we are seeing huge surges of infection in places like India and Brazil, uh, much of South America, in fact. Uh, and if we can't do better with getting control of those epidemics and getting those populations immunized, uh, the current generation of vaccines may be undermined by these new variants. Uh, that's a real threat, and, and we're working very hard to prevent that scenario.
1: Uh, Dr. Byer, uh, a listener uh, listening in on our conversation has a question for you and basically is asking, how can we as parents in good conscience um, ask our kids to get shots when we have no data to support the side effects on kids. Furthermore, this disease is not a real risk for anyone under 30. Deaths under the age of 18 represent 0.000701 percent. Basically, they're saying that kids are going to be okay, so why are we going to maybe potentially put them at risk by giving them a shot? How can we do this in good conscience?
6: Well, the first thing to say is, of course, that we wouldn't ask anybody to have their children be immunized until we have the data, and uh, so those trials are underway. Uh, and as I said earlier, the 12- to 17-year-olds' uh, data from the Pfizer uh, uh, trial uh, is going to the FDA um, and, uh, and being reviewed. So, so I, I think the caller is absolutely right that um, we need to see those data, and parents are going to want to see that before they immunize. I think it's a, a common misconception to compare COVID-19 uh, disease and deaths in children with those in adults. The real question is comparing COVID-19 disease and deaths in children with other vaccine-preventable diseases in children.
4: Mm -hmm. And when
6: you do that, the close to 300 children who died already of COVID in the United States uh, looks actually like quite a severe uh, number of cases and a vaccine-preventable infection, we hope. So uh, I think that's more compelling Um, It's also the case that um, while children have had much lower uh, rates of illness and death from COVID, they've had a very high burden of non-health. Uh, issues. The social isolation is hard for kids, the developmental issues, the educational issues that parents are so concerned about. And we think particularly for the 12 to 17-year-olds that uh, vaccination is really going to help them be able to engage again in sports and after-school activities and being with their friends. Uh, so those those all get weighed in. The The non- Uh, medical complications of COVID for kids have been severe.
1: Talking about vaccines for kids, this is a big issue, and I think we need to really understand uh, everything we can from the medical community because parents have lots of questions.
2: Yeah, look, it's something that my family thinks a lot about because my wife and I you know, Mm -hmm. are going to be fully vaccinated in the next few days, but our toddler won't be. So what does that mean for what we can and can't do?
1: Well, we always love checking in with the folks over at Hopkins. One note, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies.
2: Well, still ahead on Bloomberg Business this week. We're going to hear from the CEO of Bowery Farming. It's a vertical farming company that's backed by Google.
1: Backed by Google and a few other interesting investors. This is Bloomberg.
0: Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business app and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business
2: Week. So a big focus on the climate this past week, President Biden hosting a virtual global climate summit with world leaders. Also, of course, Earth Day. Mm -hmm. And in keeping with that, we decided to catch up with Irving Fain, the founder and CEO of Bowery Farming.
1: And you know, Tim, if you haven't heard of it, Bowery builds smart indoor farms and counts GV, formerly Google Ventures, also Henry Kravis of KKR, and leaders in food, including David Barber of Blue Hill, Tom Colecchio, and Jose Andres as investors. And uh, here's some of our conversation with Irving Fain of Bowery Farming.
5: What we do at Bowery is is build smart indoor farms that we locate very close to the cities and the communities that we serve. And so inside of the farms, we actually stack our crops from the floor all the way up to the ceiling. And we grow under lights that mimic the spectrum of the sun in, in a totally controlled and contained environment. And so we can grow fresh, protected produce 365 days of the year, independent of weather and independent of seasonality. But what makes it even more interesting is we go completely pesticide-free, completely agrochemical-free food. So no herbicides, no fungicides, no insecticides, no pesticides. And whereas when you do that in the field, your quality suffers and your yield suffers, in our case, we're over 100 times plus more productive than a square foot of farmland, and we use a very small fraction of the water compared to traditional agriculture.
1: What about lighting?
5: Lighting meaning meaning we use lighting or <laughs> What lighting well,
1: one we of what, what the problems that, you know, I've done, you know, some some research and some work and reporting on some of these indoor, indoor farming is that the lighting that's needed is a lot of electricity. And so when you're looking for sustainable ways, right, you've got to look at the complete picture. And I'm just curious what's involved yeah. in making sure because you say you take the seasonality out of it. And yep. I'm looking at a lot of video uh, or was earlier on your website. And there's a lot of light, obviously, that's needed for plants. So tell me a little bit about Absolutely. that part of the equation.
5: Got it. It's a a great question, Carolyn. I think it's something we think a lot about from a few different fronts. Most importantly, in number one, we power our farms with 100 percent renewable energy. And so the farm that I'm actually in right now in Maryland uses low impact hydropower for 100 percent of its power. And we'll continue to do that as we continue to build farms. So the power that we go source is from renewable sources. The second piece that I think is important to understand as you look at what we're building is what we're really doing at Bowery isn't just innovating farming, we're actually reinventing the entire fresh food supply chain. And so we do that because we control the entire supply chain from seed all the way to store. So if you compare what we're doing at Bowery to agriculture, you actually can't just compare it to a farm. You have to compare it to the entire supply chain from the harvesting to the transportation to processing and packing and then storage across the supply chain and all of the trucking miles that are required to do that. And so we're eliminating thousands of food miles, a number of different steps where food is actually wasted. And because we're centralizing everything in one place, we can power it all, as I said, with renewable energy, whereas to try to put renewable resources against the entire existing agricultural supply chain today would be really difficult. So are you a profitable company? So we, we, don't, we don't disclose our financials publicly because we are a private company, but we do think a lot about sustainability, not just from an environmental perspective, but also from an economic perspective as well. Right. Because to create the greatest impact, you need to create a sustainable, long-term, viable business, and that's a really important focus of ours.
1: Okay. and are you <laughs> creating a long-term viable business listen you we, know we're Bloomberg and I know you're not gonna open up your books and show me everything I absolutely. assume you wouldn't be doing it and you wouldn't have investors like Henry Kravis or you know GV involved if they didn't see um, a profitable path at some point so I'm just curious kind of where you guys fit in and and what's the math on this what's the business metrics on this and yep. and where does it go
5: so're you're, you're absolutely right that we're incredibly fortunate you know to date we have raised 175 million from really incredible partners Google Ventures General Catalyst, Tomasic, folks like Henry and you, you mentioned a lot of great people who mm-hmm. supported us to date and, and as you said you know folks like that don't don't support a company that they don't see a path towards becoming a large company and a, and a large business which right. requires one to, to build a sustainable business but I think the other side of, of what your question was the the interesting economic component of what we're doing, is really in that reimagination of the supply chain.
1: That's Irving Fain, the founder and CEO of Barry Farming. I love all the stuff that's going on when it comes to farming, whether it's on rooftops, whether it's um, hydroponic. I mean, we're really trying to figure out better and more productive ways to do it and really a lot more closer to actually to the people who need it.
2: Yeah, and oftentimes when you think of food, you don't necessarily think of venture capital and tech companies like, you know, the venture arm of Google. But you marry those companies with people like Tom Colicchio, and, and people involved at Blue Hill at Stone Barns. Yeah. That's a big
1: deal. Yeah, exactly, because they are, listen, thinking about this nonstop. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up next, another company that's interested in farming and food production. We're talking about Chipotle.
2: Burritos. We got mm-hmm. an update on the business with CEO Brian Nickel. This is Bloomberg.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: This past week, one of the best-known names in the fast-casual restaurant space, to be fair, Tim, they really kind of created the fast-casual space. We're talking about Chipotle Mexican Grill. The company reported a jump in profitability thanks to a rebound in sales and higher menu prices, Digital, once again, a big, big driver.
2: Digital absolutely took off during the pandemic, even thinking about my own experience. The first time that I downloaded Chipotle's app and used it to order ahead was in March of last year at the height of the pandemic. The company has been featured in the magazine before on the Bloomberg 50 list in 2019 for the company's turnaround, engineered by its CEO, Brian Nichol. Brian joined us once more to talk about the business and the company's outlook.
7: Yeah, look, I think we've got our company and our people uh, focused on the right things. So I, I talked about this in the earnings call, which is, you know, obviously we're a restaurant company, so we have to be hiring, training the best people, creating the right culture in the restaurants so that we provide the great culinary experiences that we can at our restaurants. and. So we started there, and uh, from there we wanted to make sure we had more accessibility, and that's really where the digital focus has come in, as well as our in dining room experience. And as you mentioned, we've made tremendous progress on the digital front. We actually had uh, record sales for the quarter. Uh, we did over eight hundred and seventy million dollars just in digital sales, uh, which you know was up in a big way. And uh, you know that's because we're giving more customers more access, and with that digital ability. Uh, It's really convenient whether you want to order ahead and pick up, order ahead and grab it from your car, order ahead and have uh, it delivered. And then now with COVID cases on the decline, vaccines going up and more places opening up dining rooms, we're seeing people come back into our dining rooms for that great experience as well.
2: How would you characterize capacity right now compared with pre-pandemic in the actual restaurants?
7: You know so in our dining rooms we probably have recovered about 60 percent of uh, our dining room business we're optimistic that that's going to continue to climb as more and more places become more and more open and uh, people get back to their normal routines you know taking kids to school going to work um, whatever your normal day looks like the thing that's really great news about this is while our dining rooms have recovered Uh, our digital business has not really uh, seen any cannibalization to meaningful levels. So that's why you see the record sales in digital, even while our dining rooms are coming back.
1: That's pretty remarkable. You expect that to continue even as the world continues to reopen, Brian?
7: No, I do. I I think people by nature want to be social. And one of the more social things to do is uh, have lunch together, have dinner together. And then also, I don't think this is changing. When people get back to their normal routines, they want access to great, clean food in a customized fashion in a convenient way. And, you know, Chipotle is that, right? We're food with integrity. Uh, it's totally customizable. And, uh, you know, the speed is pretty amazing. So. Uh, I think it's going to continue, and I believe people will continue to come back to the dining rooms, and they're going to demand more access digitally. you got to be able to do both.
1: What was more important, the stimulus checks that came out from the government or the handcrafted uh, quesadillas? <laughs> I'm just curious, what had a bigger, bigger <laughs> impact on the bottom line?
7: Well, you know, what's definitely clear is both uh, played a really good role. And uh, so, you know, obviously the stimulus payments are a point in time. Uh, versus the quesadilla is going to be around for a long time and uh, so we're optimistic about where we get to with the addition of the quesadilla in the business and uh, you know i think putting our food into this uh, really portable solution which is you know the quesadilla it's just fabulous so i don't know if you had a chance to try it but i highly encourage it
1: i love me some quesadilla and yours included but was it really 10 percent of first quarter sales that just like blows my mind
7: yeah, no, it came out of the gates really strong and uh, the feedback from customers has been really excellent. You know, they, they love the experience. They love being able to you know, get their guac or queso or pico de gallo with our quesadillas and uh, the digital experience has been really phenomenal. It's a great start. A lot of new people came into our business. Uh, I think it was the highest level of new users that Chipotle in the month of March. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that we brought the quesadilla out.
2: Hey, Brian, I I know digital was, was so big for you this last quarter and over the last year, but you're also thinking a lot about restaurants looking to close to double or more than double the footprint in the U.S. and Canada uh, in the coming years, I'm wondering how you're thinking about the restaurant experience on the other side of this, because we do know that there's likely going to be some sort of hybrid work environment where people are going to be working from home and Chipotle has been huge for people, uh, who are working, uh, in offices, right? This is what they grab and go and they get for lunch. Yeah. So how are you thinking about locations differently? And also how are you thinking about store, uh, design differently to, imagine some sort of new normal on the other side of the pandemic. Because
1: I'm also thinking there's some real estate deals out there right now. Because of the pandemic.
2: Yeah. You know, look, uh,
7: you're exactly right. We believe there is a lot of opportunity for us to build a lot more Chipotle's. Right. We're just shy of three thousand today. You probably saw in our release, we opened 40 new restaurants in the first quarter. We've guided to doing about 200 new restaurants this year. Uh, And ultimately, we want to get to, you know, five, six thousand plus restaurants. Um, So As we think about the design of these restaurants, though, we want to make sure we've got great accessibility. So if that means you're coming in for a dining room experience, I think it's important to have a great seat with great music, get your food quickly, get exactly what you want, and get on with your meal. And I think that trend is not changing. Um, And then the digital, we've added more access by providing this Chipotle window where you can order ahead and pick it up from your car. And, you know, that's been a phenomenal uh, breakthrough for us where we see our... You know our total business goes up as a result of it but our digital business increases and predominantly increases with the order ahead and pickup business which is our most profitable transaction so to answer your question i think the good news is we're really well positioned for the hybrid work model the return to work model uh, you you can insert whatever normalcy is the new normal we're ready to go because we've got access for all of those occasions and uh you know i'm confident that food with integrity customized at a great value is going to continue to win the day
2: and where does where does order and delivery uh, come into this because I know that's something that you talked about and the cost of actually getting that burrito that food to the consumer that's expensive how do you lower that cost
7: yeah so look we would love to find ways to lower the cost of the delivery channel uh, that's why we're experimenting and investing in companies like neuro where it's a occupantless autonomous uh, vehicle. Uh, Until then, though, you know, obviously we want to get as efficient as we can in that channel, but those costs obviously make delivery a more premium convenience. And so uh, what we've seen is people understand that and uh, we pass those costs on in order to get that premium convenience, you, you know, there's a price to pay for it. We would love to find ways to lower that cost so that, you know, we don't have to charge that premium
1: hey one thing i want to go back to digital if i can brian is you recently launched a digital only restaurant that's up in uh, i think highland falls new york how is that doing and i'm curious if there's plans for for more
7: yeah it's doing really well uh thanks for asking and yeah we will be doing more uh i would say in the us it's more of a fill-in strategy Mm. uh you know so think of some of these markets where you've got a lot of Chipotle's already we want to give people that additional access. Maybe we need, frankly, you know, you got the Chipotle doing three, $4 million. Um, if we could put in another restaurant, do it all digital, one, it'll make the experience better at that one Chipotle. Uh, and then also gives people a better digital experience. So I think there's opportunities there. And then there are trade areas like Highland Falls, uh, where it just makes sense to have a digital only restaurant. And so where those present opportunities, we'll obviously do that. But the majority of what we'll continue to build is a, you know, a, a, a Chipotle that has all the access points, right? The thing that's great about Chipotle is we have a kitchen that is doing real culinary, fresh ingredients. The guys are just cooking up unbelievable chicken, steak, and then that kitchen services these two businesses, right? You got the digital ordering business, and you got the customer that comes in, moves down the line, and. We've got the capacity off that kitchen to service both of those experiences. So, you know, we've got a lot of room to grow still in the digital business, and we've got a lot of room to grow on that uh, dining business. I I love the situation we're in right now.
1: Brian, I know you guys didn't come out with, um, I think, a 2021 uh, comp sales forecast. There are still concerns about COVID and the impact. Tell me about the visibility you feel like that you do have or... Is it maybe at the end of the year, do you feel like you'll start to feel more confident about visibility?
7: Yeah, look, I, I think it's just uh, us being uh, aware of what's happening, right? You see some regions where COVID continues to spike and uh, you're hearing a lot of good things as it relates to the vaccine. Uh, so as I think we just get further into the year, uh, you'll get rid of some of that, um, I guess, volatility associated with COVID. Mm. Uh, and then that gives you more confidence sharing you know, a, a number. You know, obviously we plan, accordingly um, for a certain response to our initiatives Uh, but you know when there's external factors like COVID going on uh, I think the prudent thing to say is hey look I think we've got the right plans in place to navigate it right Um, but it really doesn't make sense to commit to a number
1: that's Chipotle CEO Brian Nickel. And to be fair, like you mentioned before we got into the interview, he was on the Bloomberg 50 list back in 2019. I mean, he really did come into a company. We know all of the E. coli outbreaks at, at uh, Chipotle really set it back for several years. They had a huge turnover in terms of the management. I spent a lot of time initially with Steve Ells, who was one of the co founders of the company, uh, and all of that management. And they really do fast casual and change the restaurant space in a big way, but they had big problems. And Brian Nickel came. In and really turned that company around.
2: It's been incredible what he's been able to do, and shareholders have certainly rewarded him and the Mm -hmm. company for that. Well, that's going to wrap up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Tim Stenovek, And
1: I'm Carol Masser. Coming up in our next hour, we're going to look at the future of energy kind of from a management perspective. I would say it's a great business school case study. Basically, we're comparing the CEO of Exxon and the CEO of Tesla. We're talking about Elon Musk. Who will have it right when it comes to the future of energy?
2: Plus, we're talking Auto Trader and electric cars because Auto Trader has a list of the best EVs of 2021. And Carol, one big name failed to make the list. I gave it away at the beginning.
1: You did give it away, and I just gave it away too, kind of because I just talked about <laughs> Tesla. Folks, they're not on the list. We'll explain why. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week, insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine, plus global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including a look inside Auto Traders' list of the best electric cars of 2021.
2: Plus, Consuelo vanderbilt Costin tells us all about Soho Muse. It's her new professional networking website for the global creating community.
1: And if her name sounds familiar, it should. It's one of the iconic families of the United States. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. First up this hour, this week's Remarks in the Magazine takes a look at the future of energy from a management perspective. This is a great business school case study.
2: It really is. It looks at Tesla CEO Elon Musk and also his counterpart at ExxonMobil, Darren Woods. Safe to say that the name of Exxon CEO probably doesn't readily come to mind. He keeps a low profile, unlike Mr. Elon Musk. We
1: spoke with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber and Bloomberg Opinion columnist Liam Denning, who watches the commodities space.
4: The way I think about it is, you know, if you go back a few years, Exxon was the most valuable company in the world. It could kind of do no wrong. um, And investors had this kind of rock solid belief in it. And here we are, you know, just a few short years later in early 2021. um, Exxon is, you know, it's been through some troubling times. It's run pretty much the same as it always has been, but it's lost that kind of uh, belief from investors, whereas Tesla, you know, despite everything it does that you think would shake belief, um, just has this kind of fanatical devotion on the part of investors. So I just thought it was an interesting way of looking at these two companies opposite ends of the energy business it's
1: really interesting and i thought man this would be great to like just sit down with a bunch of people like we are doing now and just talk about it like you do wonder because both liam are optimistic long term and how can that be possible can it be possible that they both have at least in the somewhat longer term you know optimistic futures or is that impossible
4: i think it's impossible you know there is one viewpoint that says well look the energy transition will take time and these Both of these companies can certainly make money for some period. But I think when you look at their core belief systems, they're just very different. I mean, you know, Bloomberg NEF, our own in-house forecasters, you know, they're pretty bullish on electric vehicles. But even they see it as taking a little while, um, maybe into the middle of the the 2030s, to see, like, serious market penetration. Elon Musk sees it happening much quicker than that. You look at ExxonMobil... Um, they're more in the "it will take time" camp. We can develop new businesses, that sort of thing. I just think the 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 um, the the sheer aggressiveness of each view makes them incompatible. You know, one one of these is going to work out to be true, but not both.
2: It does seem like the money right now is on Tesla, though. It, it's it's hard to imagine a world where fossil fuels and a company that really is is focused on fossil fuels uh, ends up being the one that survives, right?
4: Uh, I think longer term, you know, fossil fuels are, are going to uh, peak and decline, absolutely. Um, I think it's a question of degree. You know, um, Exxon has suffered mainly because it made some really bad tactical errors, um, you know, stretching all the way back to about a decade ago when it bought this very expensive last year. Um, And there have been other mistakes. Um, I think where it it gets a little unbelievable is if you look at Tesla. I mean, clearly, there is a lot of money flowing into clean tech right now, and there is a bright future for that business. But, you know, you look at Tesla, it's made about a billion dollars of profit over the last six quarters. It's valued at like $700 billion. Um, Has the market got a bit ahead of itself on Tesla? I would say well, that
2: kind of speaks to you know how Exxon specifically has performed this year year today, uh, Liam, and and that number actually really jumped out to me. Um, so talk about like why why an Exxon might be able to pre- continue to perform in the in the shorter term, while while as in the long run we can might still the market might be right to be bullish on Tesla.
4: Yeah, I think in the short term what Exxon is doing it's, it's a couple of things. One is that it's just at the oil price. Has recovered a bit from the from the COVID pandemic, so that's kind of lifted all oil companies. I think the other thing is Exxon has, you know, it, it, Exxon was kind of aloof for the longest time. I mean, I think I mentioned in the piece that um, Darren Woods made um, made headlines just for showing up on an earnings call.
7: Ouch!
4: <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, And and they've actually had to listen, you know, they actually had activists show up and had to engage with them. And so they have, um, they've adjusted their stance. They've they've reined in spending. They've started acknowledging that there is actually an energy transition and they're they're potentially going to start businesses. But look at that. So they're they're coming back partly because the oil price is coming back, but partly because they seem to have acknowledged their past um, mistakes. With Tesla there is there is um there right. is the core story of the energy transition and that's that's right of course um but it's also a function of the fact that we are we are in a moment in markets where that kind of long term vision thing Uh, is meeting, you know, very low interest rates, and you you do get some fantastic valuations.
1: That's Bloomberg Opinion columnist Liam Denning and Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. And listen, Tim, only time will tell which vision of the future of energy will be correct. Is it Exxon or is it Tesla?
2: Well, shareholders are certainly voting right now, and Tesla is, I think, in the lead. Well, coming up, Tesla was part of another conversation we had this week because of its absence from the list of the best EVs of 2021. We're going to explain right after this. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: A lot going on in the world of electric vehicles, right? We know that, especially as major automakers ramp up their offerings. Recently, we heard about Mercedes Benz Tim entering a new era with its flagship S Class sedan going electric.
2: So, we decided to get a roundup of the best electric vehicles of 2021, according to one batch of metrics, this one from Auto Trader, which interestingly does not include a major player in the space.
1: And I'm going to say it has something to do with those metrics. We caught up with Brian Moody, he's executive editor for Auto Trader. He filled us in on how they came up with the list and its findings.
8: So one of the things that we included was the car had to have a plug. And so we didn't include hybrids, but we did include plug-in hybrids. So they're both electric only and plug-in hybrid vehicles. We also put the price cap at $75,000. And we wanted to only include cars that would be available within the next six months to the public so that it would be, you know, it would be meaningful to someone who's going to buy an electric car.
1: All right, so notably absent is Tesla. Is it that dollar mark that knocks it out, or what?
8: No, because Tesla actually has um, a couple of cars well under right. that price range. Last year, uh, we do this list every year, last year we had the Model 3 on our list, mm-hmm. and it is a fun car to drive, but we also like the way it looked. But one of the reasons we didn't include it this year was because of increasing competition, for one thing, and a lot of us didn't care for that main central screen that controls everything a more traditional screen uh, with also gauges where you expect them to be, we thought was safer and more in line with what people would expect from a car.
1: All right, so it was reviewed, but you you guys just didn't really like it as much.
8: Yeah, and it's a good car. I think if someone was looking for an inexpensive electric car that's fun, and that's your main criteria, I would say you should be looking at cars like the Hyundai Kona, the Ford Mustang Mach-E, And that's in addition to to many others that, you know, we have a list of 10. You can't include everything. Let's
1: talk about them. And that's fair. And what's interesting, when I was looking at your list, I'm like, wow, there's a fair amount of EVs out there. So walk us through the list, some of the standouts, uh, based on your analysis.
8: Well, one standout that's really telling is the new Chevy Bolt EUV. And what that is, is it's more of a crossover SUV type version of the Chevy Bolt we already know. So that tells you right there, Chevrolet knows something about making money and about making cars that people want. Crossover SUVs is where this is going. We also like the Toyota RAV4 Prime. Again, same type of thing. The Volvo XC40 Recharge, an all-electric small Volvo SUV. And then the Ford Mustang Mach-E, which is a Mustang in name, but it has more of a, uh, sits high up off the ground and has more of a crossover SUV type of feel. You see, a, you see a theme here, people mm-hmm.
1: like SUVs. Yeah, well, listen, right? I mean, that's the one thing, I guess, when it comes to the EV market, right? Do, I mean, do makers, manufacturers, they need to be thinking about really kind of the cars people want to be driving if they're, you know, hoping to kind of juice those EV uh, purchase numbers.
8: Right, that, that's exactly right. Now, there are plenty that aren't SUV based. For example, mm-hmm. the Nissan LEAF is an affordable one that we like. Um, but when it comes to cars like, say, uh, the Hyundai Ionic, well, those aren't SUVs. That's just a regular car. But there's also a good number of plug-in hybrids. We did put a couple of those on the list, too, because we feel like it bridges the gap between fully electric and some concerns people might have and fully gas that has its own set of concerns. And one of the best of those is the Lincoln Aviator. It's a plug-in hybrid that goes for 21 miles on electric only, Hmm. then gas and electric combined to get great gas mileage.
1: Well, you know, what is it that people want right now? What's the consumer demand? Do they want the hybrids? Do they want completely electric vehicles? What are still their concerns? I do feel like the infrastructure is still lagging uh, when it comes to support of the electrical vehicle market.
8: Right. I don't think that the confidence is there. So what people want are trucks and SUVs. Yeah. And when you can give them an electric version of that, and this is the important part, convince them that they will never be without a way to refuel or recharge, that's when it's going to, you know, really make a difference. There's a lot of electric trucks coming but they're just not here right now.
1: Well, do you feel like with the President's infrastructure plan, and certainly there's allocation for things like this, and building out the infrastructure for electric vehicles, we're going to need to have some kind of program like that in order for EVs to really take off in this country?
8: Probably, yes. Um, But here's the one thing that concerns me is that if it was, you know, the way the market works, the way the economy works is that it's it's market-driven. It's demand-driven. Competition makes great things. Why don't we see gas stations ramping up their electric charging stations to make stacks of money? I don't know the answer, but the fact that it's not happening makes me think that there's something that we, are, we aren't really aware of at this point. The well, cars are good, and they can be charged up at home, but that's not enough for some people.
1: Well, who owns gas stations in the U.S.? Are they franchises, or are they owned by the big you know, integrated oil companies who are kind of working their book there, No.
8: Right, and many are many are franchises, so they would they're probably making more money on selling coffee and Twinkies than they are selling gas.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Hey, when you look ahead to this year, I do feel like all of a sudden there is a lot of momentum. Whether it's Volkswagen, whether it's Mercedes, whether it's you know pick your well-known auto manufacturer, it does feel like all of a sudden everybody's all in on EVs.
8: Yes, and I'll tell you something that you just mentioned that I find very um, encouraging: the Volkswagen ID. Four that you just mentioned is a very compelling car, no matter how it's powered. So it is an all-electric car. That's the only way it comes. But it's good-looking. It's fun to drive. The interior is great. The part that it's electric, I don't know that younger drivers are going to care that much as they get older. They just want something cool. That new Volkswagen is just cool no matter what.
2: That was, of course, Brian Moody, executive editor for Auto Trader. So, Carol, I think one thing that's so fascinating about electric vehicles here in the United States is the fact that there are so many different players, but Mm -hmm. Tesla just dominates when it comes to mindshare, when it comes to marketing, even though there's no actual formal marketing for Tesla. It's just the CEO, Elon Musk, is such a vocal proponent, and he is out there talking about it, and he's got so many followers and fans.
1: Well, he's a dynamic individual, and he definitely has been a game changer. I think most people would agree, go back a couple of years, when it felt like the traditional automakers were taking their time. When it came to EVs or hybrids. And all of a sudden, Elon Musk comes up and it kind of blows up the way we do things. And all of a sudden, everybody else wakes up as a result.
2: Yeah, and I think back to when Tesla for introduced its first cars, right? They did it at the really high-end category. It was mm-hmm. super, super expensive. And the strategy has been to bring that price down and bring that entry point down. So it does get to that point where Kathy Wood says it is going to be significantly cheaper than buying an internal combustion vehicle.
1: And I have to just say, like you go out to the West Coast, you've always seen a fair amount of Teslas. That makes sense. It's where their yeah. first production plan. And it's an environment that easily can do it, but I see a lot more here now on the East Coast. You
2: know, it's something I talked to Dana Hall about, the Tesla reporter for Bloomberg News. She lives in California, and you know, whenever I go to California, you see Teslas everywhere. But here in New York, you're seeing more and more. But it's still something I notice. It's still something I notice when I see a Tesla. Right.
1: And there still needs to be more infrastructure. Everybody says that.
2: Well, still to come up on Bloomberg Business Week, we're going to hear from a member of New York City's founding families about protecting art and culture in a post-pandemic world. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week, and this is Bloomberg.
0: Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991. to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business app and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week.
1: So earlier this year, Bloomberg reported on how two-thirds of New York City's arts and culture jobs were gone because of the global pandemic. Cultural organizations around the world have been hurt hard. We know this because of the shutdowns.
2: Well, someone whose family has been involved in the arts and really is one of the country's iconic dynasties. And one of New York City's founding families, Consuelo vanderbilt Costin, philanthropist, entrepreneur, co-founder of Soho Muse. It's a professional networking website for the global creating community.
1: And we started with a question we ask a lot of guests. How has this past year been?
9: You know, I think, as with everyone, it's been incredibly challenging. Um, you know, I'm so grateful that both family and friends, that everyone's healthy now. But, you know, it's it's been just awful to watch, you know. Um, and I think just, you know, I say that in one breath, obviously, for the, you know, the fatality rate and what's happened. Um, but on a positive note, I also look at, I think there's been a lot of incredible growth and changes, and I hope that we can kind of, Keep to the lessons that we've learned. I mean, you know, just keeping things simple and small,
1: right? Right. Fingers crossed, right, that we actually, you know, have learned something from this unfortunate time and and come out yeah. better on the on the other side. One thing, right. Exactly. One thing I want to ask you: you do work with an organization. You're a co-founder of Soho Muse. Talk to us about this role because you have a front-row seat when it comes to folks in the art world, uh, who are involved in, you know, the arts and culture. So tell us about kind of some of those stories. And, I mean, I can only imagine that it's been a rough one this past year.
9: So home Muse kind of define as the LinkedIn for creatives. It's a membership-based site, and, and we help and, and work with all different forms of the creative universe, so from musicians, dancers, writers, actors across the gamut knowing that creatives really work in projects. So if I'm putting together a music video, a feature film, um, we really help to procure job opportunities. Uh, we've just actually opened up a younger generation here called Soho Meets World for kids at 14 and upwards um, and bringing in a home mentorship and master class program to really help them. And so, you know, it's our, our world is kind of a, a 360 universe. Um, and... Right in the beginning of the pandemic, um, we really started to see that a lot of our Broadway stars, artists that are normally on tour, were suffering so much. So we created this series called Saves, um, which is just extraordinary, where you know artists like Tiffany, if mm-hmm. you remember her, yeah. so, you know, she sold over 12 million albums, and, um, and her doing acoustic performances, which she's never done before. And so she was really able to showcase a whole other side to her.
1: You know, what's interesting is you did have performers who were stuck home and all of a sudden they would normally be on tour. And I'm sure they can't wait to get back out on tour. But it was kind of interesting to see another way for them to reach their fans by being able to perform virtually. And I do wonder, do you think some of that stays with us? On the other side of the pandemic, not replacing, you know, in-person performances, if you will, but it's just another way to kind of reach out and maybe give access to people who maybe can't afford a ticket to something. It's just another
9: venue. Carol, I absolutely believe that it's going to be something that will be used, and and it kind of I think that where artists have actually found, you know, a comfort and even, you know, whether it's testing new songs and doing things in a, you know, a very very different medium than they normally have done. Um, I think this will absolutely be something that will surpass the pandemic.
1: Consuela, we talked about how some of what artists had to do during the pandemic, whether it's virtual performances, that it stays with us. Uh, and maybe perhaps that creates another revenue stream, especially if maybe even for, you know, start, starting out artists or younger artists or smaller artists. And, and I do think it could be a very productive outcome on the other side of the pandemic. Do you agree?
9: I absolutely agree and I think just as you said you know for this younger talent it's giving them an opportunity to test out new materials to increase you know kind of their fan base and and to learn how it actually feels in a a way to you know be raw and vulnerable which is you know the wonderful thing about being an artist and um, and so yes I really do I think that it's as I said I think this is gonna be something that absolutely will be post pandemic You know, we look at YouTube and I mean, my goodness, Justin Bieber was discovered that way. Right. So I think that that, um, I do. I I think that um, a lot of great things will be coming from that. I do.
2: This is something I've thought a lot about, Carol, over the last year is is what art looks like on the other side of this and, and what creators and artists did over the last year. It's been exhausting for a lot of people. Yeah. But I just hope that we see. A rise in creativity. We see some just fantastic creators. We see some fantastic artwork on the other side of this. And in a few years, we can look back on this as a time when people got to reflect and create.
1: Yeah, I hope so, too. And I, I do think that once things reopen, we're going to be back at museums. We're going to be back seeing plays. We're going to be back doing all of it, going to concerts. That was Consuelo Vanderbilt-Costin, philanthropist and entrepreneur co-founder of
2: Soho Muse. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we check in on the status of the cannabis industry with the CEO of Truly. I'm just going to say, it's smoking. <laughs> this, You've been waiting to do that. I have, sorry. This is Bloomberg.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week, Tim, the unofficial official marijuana holiday. We're talking about four twenty. It did though give us an opportunity to check in on the cannabis business.
2: Well, at the start of the year, Bloomberg reported that the cannabis industry is finally going to hit the gas pedal in twenty twenty one. And for more on the state of the business, we caught up with Kim Rivers, CEO of the cannabis company TrueLeave. It's a seed to sale vertically integrated cannabis company. We asked her what the last year has been like.
10: The year has been uh you know, incredibly busy. Um, but you know, we've been very busy really since since the beginning of last year, um, you know, we saw incredible increased demand um, throughout the COVID period. And are um, now as we come out of COVID, kind of have a little bit of a rebalance in terms of how our customers are doing business with us. But demand remains very, very strong um, across all of the states that we that we do business in.
1: What does that rebalance mean? You say demand is strong. Is it not as strong as it was? And yeah. just talk to us a little bit about the rebalance. No, yeah. it
10: yeah, no, it it is. So what I mean by that is when we entered 2020. Uh, so to give you a couple of quick stats um, for our business, and we have, um, you know, at that point in time, I think we had about, uh, I think around 50 or so stores um, open. And so during that during that time before COVID, we had about 70% of our business was walk-in, so just folks coming into our retail stores. About uh, 20% was, uh, you know, call ahead or online pickup. And then about ten percent was delivery at the height of COVID. Obviously, that that behavior changed dramatically, and so about sixty um, percent was uh, online or pre-orders um, for pickup. About twenty um, percent was delivery, and then a small about ten percent was walk-in business. And so we're seeing that shift back a bit. Although interestingly, and I don't think this is unique for cannabis, but um, for for a lot of retailers, you know, interestingly, the uh, the pickup, the online ordering uh, channel has remained very strong. So that's still at around between fifty and fifty percent. So that certainly was very sticky, um, with deliveries going back down to that 10% number that we saw um, pre-COVID. But demand overall remains incredibly strong. So if we just use Florida as an example, uh, when we exited 2020, there were about 2,500 patients every week, Florida's medical program, entering the program in Florida. Now in 2021, the last 10-week average is at about 5,500 <sighs> patients entering the program so yeah so it's it's been (sighs) um and you know incredibly strong for 2021 as well um in terms of new market entrance um, into across really all again all of the states, in Pennsylvania also a market huh. that were uh, that we're active in, and um, that the the patient uh, profile there and demand um, also is is very very strong in
2: twenty one. Kim, I want to get your thoughts on uh, HR nineteen ninety six. It's called the Safe Banking Act. The U.S. House of Representatives passed it, and this would give state authorized marijuana businesses easier access to banking services. This has been tough. It, for, for U.S. business owners, because you guys have been dealing in, in cash, right?
10: Yes. So we, we deal in either cash or um, we have partnered with a company called CanPay, which if you think about it, like a, a preloaded uh, card. So if I'm a Starbucks addict. So a preloaded Starbucks card is, is the easiest example. Um, and we're just starting to see some workarounds on the debit card side. But to your point, yes, it is pri- primarily a, a cash-based business. So, so this wanna-
2: is a big deal. Because I mean, look, the yeah, Democrats it's, it's, Democrats have tried to pass this before, but they haven't controlled the House mm-hmm. and the Senate previously. So, yep. if this goes through, that's really yep. good news for you guys.
10: Yeah, and it's it's good news for us. So, I mean, I will just tell you that certainly, um, in terms of being able to have uh, you know alternative payment methods, is is a is a big deal, and it's certainly a big deal for our, our consumers. And from a safety and security standpoint, we do have um, armored car service, and we. You know, deposit directly into the Federal Reserve. So we've eliminated as many of those risks as possible to date, and we are able to bank with state chartered banks. We're just not able to bank with. Federally chartered banks, for obvious reasons, so that would change that landscape. I mm. would say more importantly, though, potentially, is the fact that we also don't have access to normalized banking or lending tools. Right. So when you look at um, rates that cannabis businesses are forced to take, it's with really subprime, you know, lenders or more at more predatory rates. So some of my peers, for example, have been forced to take out to take uh, to take debt on at you know fifteen percent to twenty percent interest rates because again, there's no access to normal tools. We can't get mortgages. We can't um, have business lines of credit. Um, So that coupled with, you know, the federal provisions under 280E, which are taxation um, laws, we also can't take normalized deductions. So we don't have things like normal business deductions, whether that be depreciation or, you know, again, um, just, you know, expenses that you would normally be able to deduct as a business. And so those two things together make um, you know, make profitability very, very difficult as a legal um, under state law cannabis operator, and so think right. banking would certainly help um, on that first piece um, to to again give us again, of course, being able to take other forms of payment, but also um, being able to work with um, larger institutions and have access to um, normalized right. uh, lending and
1: and and hey, yeah, can, loan hey, tools. If two eighty e is lifted and that tax law is changed, what would that do to your profitability picture?
10: Yeah. So last year, it would have saved us about sixty-three point five million dollars. So, that's <laughs> so making
1: you <it> much
10: more <laughs> profitable. Yes, yeah, much more profitable than um, than than wow. we were. I mean, we we do run a profitable business currently, but yes, it would it would be um, it would be a, a great a great help.
2: Kim, let's talk more about uh, the industry at large. One thing that I was surprised to learn, even in areas where marijuana is legal for medicinal or for uh, recreational purposes, the illicit market. Continues to thrive. Um, just one in three cannabis consumers in the US buys from established brick and mortar stores. That's according to a survey published this month by New Frontier Data. The most popular source remains the user's friends, while well, another 20% get their weed from dealers. How do you change that?
10: Yeah, and I think that first of all, there has to be um, access, right? And it has to be easy and convenient for customers. And so even when we talk about, you know, in in Florida, for example, we have delivery, um, which is oftentimes you know next day or even same day. However, um, the process to get delivery is very onerous for customers. So you have to be um, present, you have to sign for it. There's this again, this whole transaction that takes place, and it is um, it's like waiting for it. In some cases, can be like waiting for the cable man, right? Which no one wants to do that. So I think in some cases we need to make sure that cannabis is as convenient as. The black market um, in many sophisticated black market areas. Um, it, it's you know doorstep. It's quick. Um, it's convenient, and um, you know. So I do think that um, access and, and wider access is is really important. Um, so what does that look like, empty. though? Does that
2: look like de- sec- does that look like yeah. delivery? I mean, does it look like? I'm just trying to think of I think what. It looks,
10: I think. Yeah, I think it's a full omni-channel experience, okay. right? I mean, I think that certainly it does look like it does look like delivery. It's like um, for, for some, and it, yeah, I mean, Amazon right like like amazon i mean when we think about it now i don't think that you know tomorrow we're going to have drones leaving cannabis on doorsteps well right? amazon doesn't have However, it yet either even though they've
2: been talking about it for don't, years
10: don't say never <laughs> Yeah, but I do think that right. I do think that when you think about um, even how far you know alcohol delivery has come um, over the years, and or you know convenience um, to to alcohol. Again, we have to make sure that this isn't getting in the hands of children. It is a regulated product. There certainly are going to be certain barriers, um, and it will remain a regulated industry. However, I do think that if the goal is to compete head to head with the black market there needs to be one access into education and three, right. We have to be price competitive and product competitive um, with the black market as well. And so, um, which, you know, again, taking another cue from alcohol and how, how we came out of prohibition, um, with alcohol, a lot of that had to do with the fact that, um, we were able to educate customers on um, the safety, right, mm. and how, um, you know, how it was safer to, to actually consume products from a regulated uh, distributor as opposed to someone making bathtub gin. So I think similarly, right, and we saw that a little bit with the base gate crisis that happened um, last year with out in California and West Coast, um, west in, on the West Coast, you know, additives being added to uh, black market products that were very, very harmful um, for customers when inhaled. And so I think that um, as, again, more widespread widespread uh, regulation happens across the country, hopefully at the federal level, you know, cons- consumers will um, will certainly, you know, right. be uh, drawn to um, safer products.
1: Hey, Kim, one question I want to ask you, and just looking at your background, I mean, you spent several years in, pro- and in private practice as a lawyer, where you were specializing yep. in mergers and acquisitions. And I look at the cannabis industry, and I'm just thinking it might be ripe for some more consolidation. What are your expectations there? Is that maybe in the game plan for you guys?
10: You know, absolutely, I
1: believe that, um, that, that
10: cannabis um, is is certainly like any you know growth industries, and you know as as they evolve, right? There will be uh, consolidation and, and meaningful consolidation across across the industry. Certainly, also as we see um, the federal landscape shifting. Um, so you know, we already have been um, active mm-hmm. in in the M and A arena, and we plan to continue continue to be active um, in that space. So certainly for us, and then I, I'm, I would assume for for many others. Um, I think that you you absolutely will see a consolidation happen. Over the next, I'll call it twenty-four
2: months. That's Kim Rivers, the CEO of True Carol, I gotta tell you, it feels like in the last couple of years, but especially this year, cannabis has gone from something that was really fringe to something that is seriously mainstream.
1: Yeah, I think the November elections were a big deal when you saw more states endorsing it for either recreational or medical use. And I think that's a big deal. But as Kim mentioned to us, Kim Rivers, of course, the CEO of True you know. One of the big things is federally getting some rules about the industry that would make banking much easier and you know, state-to-state uh, business interactions a lot simpler.
2: Yeah, serious economic implications for states as well, if that happens.
1: If you missed uh, any of the conversation and the full conversation, you can find that on our podcast feed. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser.
2: And I'm Tim Stenevec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show. It's Monday through Friday. It starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcasts. Find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg
1: Business Week is available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal.
2: You can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take. It's available at Bloomberg.com slash QT. Also streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Have a great weekend. This is Bloomberg.